Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of the Nation on iTunes, Google Play, or on sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Nicole Baker-Fulgham about the educational disparities that have been revealed through the pandemic crisis and how we can reimagine our educational system and what parents should think as they talk every night about school reopening, (laughs) which we all are. So, Dr. Nicole Baker-Fulgham is the founder founder and president of the Expectations Project, lovely name, the nation's largest network of faith-motivated education equity advocates. Nicole has a BA from the University of Michigan, which is good. It's a competitor with my Michigan State up the road, but it's still a good school, (laughs) and her doctorate in education from UCLA. She's the author of, and you should all read this, the author of Educating All God's Children, Did you get that? All God's children. What Christians can do to help improve low-income public schools for kids and schools in crisis. She speaks rarely at national conventions and convenings about the intersection of faith, education, justice, and race. So she's the right person to have to inform all of our dinner conversations as parents about what's happening in the next few weeks. So... Uh, welcome, Nicole. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. It's a pleasure. So let me start with this. Um, Nicole, how is your spirit these days? With all that's going on, just how, tell us how your spirit is doing. I think I am troubled would be probably the the best description. Um, Anxious and just concerned about the direction that our country is taking and the the lack of of leadership to get something awful, right? This pandemic was going to be awful, but it could have been less awful. The lack of leadership to get this handled in a way that just follows, you know, basic science and data, that is probably the most troubling part um, for me. And, you know, there are moments, though, where I feel my spirit feels hopeful, you know, particularly when looking at the, the massive response to um, the horrible murder of George Floyd and seeing that sort of racial disparity that, you know, we've all known has been the case in this country for years and certainly impacts our nation's public schools, but seeing so many people come you know, to, to rallies and protests and to want to educate ourselves about systemic and institutionalized racism. So there's moments of hope, right? Um, despite all of the challenges that we're wrestling with now. All the people in the streets and who they are and how many of them there are, for me, has been also a great source of hope. It's a, a mo- moment that really could create a movement, but movements have to change things and not just address things. So that's what we're talking about today. Um, COVID-19 has revealed so much about our systems, including the educational system, which you know so much about. So the organization you lead, the Expectations Project, which I think has been an organization way ahead of its time, 
has a vision that, quote, the academic achievement gap in U.S. public education can be closed in our lifetimes, but only if people of faith open their hearts, roll up their sleeves, and get to work on behalf of students. It's a powerful vision. In what ways, Nicole, can public schools and faith communities work together? What can people of faith do to foster this collaboration? Well, I think what we what we know in our country, and this is something you talk about often in, in your work and Sojourner's, Sojourner's work, is that people of faith have been the backbone of social justice movements in our country for hundreds of years, from abolitionism, civil rights movement, immigration reform. And because the education disparities in our country are hundreds of years in the making, and they are systemic, and they follow closely along the lines of class and, of course, race, there's a role for people of faith to be advocates on this issue. And I think where we've done a lot of work and are probably best known for our work are things like church, school, or synagogue school, mosque school mm -hmm. partnerships, right. mm -hmm. you know, tutoring and backpack supplies, all of which are wonderful things. Um, kids need all of those things, as, as we like to say. But because the problems are institutional and systemic, we can't tutor or backpack supply drive our way out of the fact that millions of kids are going to schools that are severely underfunded or that, you know, in many states, millions of families don't have access to high quality preschool. So their kids start, you know, the very first year of school in kindergarten behind or that mm -hmm. black Kids in particular um, are getting suspended at some cases, you know, six, seven times the rate of their white counterparts, often for the same quote unquote disciplinary infraction, right? So those types of systemic things impact long-term what's going to happen in terms of outcomes for all of God's kids, as, as we say at the Expectations Project. And if people of faith truly want to see these challenges change, keep, you know, tutoring kids, that's wonderful. But if the tutoring doesn't prick your heart and help you see the broader problems of why am I having to come and tutor the same, you know, group of kids year after year. It's not that the kids aren't brilliant. It's that the system itself isn't setting all of our kids up to be effective. So let's tackle the policy and the systems change. We're going to get there faster. It's going to be a much deeper change. And that's what we believe people of faith are called to do with every system and definitely the public education system. Indeed. So we can't tutor our way out of this, which we like to think. So the pandemic crisis has revealed a wide range of issues within our school systems, which you are, which you are raising for us, like inequity, students reliant on food from schools, police in schools, reinforcing the school to prison pipeline, as they say, under-resourced schools, overworked and underpaid teachers, and the digital divide. The list goes on, as you know better than I. So how has COVID-19 dramatically revealed these obstacles that so disproportionately impact low-income families and children of color, and how can we address them? Mm-hmm. And I think the, the issues that you begin to articulate here are just the key ones that it, it was amazing to me when the pandemic hit and schools had to be shut down. It was almost like we were 
pulling on a house of cards, right? Where you pull one card and just multiple things start start collapsing. And I think the the shock that we've heard from a lot of people, whether it's in the media or just sort of regular, you know, US citizens going, oh, so how many kids aren't gonna have lunch and there's no way to get them food or, oh my goodness, how many kids don't actually have a device at their house to do their schoolwork now that it's all virtual, right? Like the disparities are massive, right? And it goes beyond not just having a device. It's okay, so who has broadband, you know, high-speed internet in the house and how are kids gonna get access to, to all of these things? And it, it was amazing to me to see just how many folks were surprised, one, that those challenges exist. I mean, inequities are so vast but also how you pull on one string and like everything else falls down. And so I think that has been one of the, the takeaways for a lot of individuals. You know, One, the disparities exist and they're very stark along the lines of race and class in our country. Um, but also that the degree to which these things are interconnected and interplay with each other, you, know, you can't just ask some kids to stay home if their parents are still essential workers that have right. to actually go and drive a bus or, you know, go and, you know, they're a custodian in a hospital that has to be clean because of COVID. Well, who's going to sit at home with that child um, and, and help them do their virtual online school if they happen to have been blessed to get a laptop from the school. And so that is, um, I think for us, it has been a moment and, and many people have said this, that this pandemic simply revealed the pull back the curtains on the disparities that have always existed and this allows us to see them more clearly and it's it's a push and pull right because everyone regardless of their income level is dealing with some type of loss in this season right we're all grieving something and so our our concern is how do we continue to keep the needs of the most vulnerable families in the education system at the forefront of our minds when all of us have grief and fatigue that we're dealing with different issues, right? Not as dire, but I think that's the challenge in this moment is we're all seeing it. How do we keep the flashlight shown on it so it doesn't disappear in the midst of everything else people are wrestling with? You said in a 2014 article for Sojourners, you wrote, it's a tale of two public education systems where the zip code a child is born into often determines their academic destiny and undermines their ability to discover and live out their God-given purpose. So given what you're describing right now with this, what's been revealed by COVID-19, what are the expectations, project, policy priorities right now? So for us right now, when, when things really became clear in that second or third week of March that this is going to be an ongoing issue with COVID, we shifted pretty quickly to the immediate needs, right? So ensuring that families were able to get access to food for, for their kids, um, making sure that our advocates had connections to whether it's making donations, because that was sort of the immediate need, or focusing on um, ensuring that school systems were set up to still get families what they needed, as well as technology, right? Those were sort of our two, two things on the short term. We haven't solved all of that. I think that's gonna be an ongoing challenge for some school districts are still trying to, to work through the technology piece in particular for the fall. But we also know that we can't take our eye off the long-term decisions that are being made right now, Jim, about who gets funding for school in the fall and how much funding they're gonna get for this year and next year. And that is the part that 
it's sort of these decisions are happening. And if we blink, right, they're going to, they're going to be already made. <laughs> We're going to miss the opportunity to say, actually, at the federal, state, and local level, we actually need to ensure that we're prioritizing the needs of the most vulnerable students and families from a budgetary standpoint too, right? Because kids are coming back from, from whatever this season is, we're calling it, to whatever school is gonna look like in your state or district, right? Some combination of hybrid, virtual, or you know, a little bit of in-person. And the kids that we're most concerned about have fallen further behind, right? Like that's just a fact. And I think it's impossible to deny that. I mean, you know, I have a lot of educator friends, um, you know, and I hear conversations or see them on Facebook where people are, you know, my, oh, my kid is taking AP physics. I'm going to get my friend who's a physicist to tutor my child. And it's like, oh, well, well, that's lovely. Go, go, go you. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like, and so you, you imagine like that's happening while there are millions of kids in our country who, some of whom have not had any instruction, right? There are reports in school districts around the country that in some cases, 20 or 25% of kids have not been heard from since the pandemic started. Whether it's, we didn't have the right contact information, they didn't have a device, they, they're just disappeared. You know, we, we don't know like what happened. So there are kids who got nothing, right? But then there are the rest of the kids in the middle probably who, um, if, if their families have not had those same type, same type of resources, they're just going to be further behind. And add on top of that, the fact that kids in low-income families are more likely to have dealt with potentially different types of trauma in this season. You add that to the mix, and those kids are coming back to school academically behind and having dealt with economic trauma um, loss of life um, in their family due to COVID. We all know that um, COVID is impacting the Black community at such higher rates. There was a Washington Post article a week or two ago that said, estimate or the the, the report said that 25% of African Americans know someone who passed away from COVID, and th there was like single digits for for white families. So imagine, uh, and you know this that you know I lost my beloved father to COVID as well, and. And I look at um, just the impact that it has on just, you know, my 14-year-old daughter who does have a, a, other resources, right? She is not dealing with economic or food insecurity, but the emotional impact on her, imagine that times a thousand because there are other sort of trauma issues interacting with that. And that's going to be the case for so many black and brown kids coming back to virtual or hybrid school. And so instead of you know, threatening to pull funding from schools, which we know is happening at the, the federal level, pull to threatening to pull funding from the very schools that are struggling to figure out how to reopen because their communities are literally on fire with COVID. We should be figuring out how to give more money and emergency money to schools for whose kids are coming back behind and having dealt with significantly more emotional trauma. And it's a crime and a moral disgrace that we're not actually looking at it that way. A crime and a moral disgrace uh, as we now enter into their back in Congress as of today, and there is no plan to give schools the resources they need to do this in the way you're talking about. So forgive me for raising politics, but President Trump and our fellow Michigander Betsy DeVos are advocating as, as the education secretary, of course, are advocating for schools to reopen. Uh, everyone, sooner 
than many dedicated and, and prepared public school educators feel comfortable with, with all these tremendous divides like, gee, which physicist friend should I get to help my kid with AP physics versus uh, kids that nobody's heard from for, for months and where, uh, you know, three times the number of, of, of black families have been impacted by this disease than white families and, the, and double the death rate. Uh, so, so how can faith and community leaders protect students and teachers when it's made now been political that this is what people have to do because the president and the education secretary say so. And this is the role of, of strong leaders of faith um, to speak into this moment. And we need to put a moral frame on this uh, in a way that perhaps we, we haven't um, as strongly as we could. And that's one of the things we would certainly call um, all the who are listening to this to, to engage in this from a, from a moral and ethical lens because we all know that there are no easy answers. Um, you know, you and I are both parents. We recognize that this is for all parents who are listening to this, there, there is no easy solution. It's incredibly complicated, but we know that the solution is not to ignore the voices of educators and families who are concerned about, you know, educators, you know, many of them are older. Um, and so uh, there have been statistics that suggest that 25% or so may uh, be sort of in a more vulnerable age or comorbidity category. So that's real, right? And they're also, we know for a lot of um, lower income families, there are a lot of intergenerational families living at home. And so to think that we're going to have our kids go to school and um, bring something potentially back to their family, like it's incredibly scary. And to, to have this conversation sort of starting from the point of, open, 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 as opposed to, well, actually, we all would love our kids to be in school, like no parent or teacher, I'm sure, listening does not want that and realizes that it's for the best. But we have to center the voices of students, families, and educators in this decision in a way that we haven't seen in a lot of places. And that, to me, from a regarding everyone's life as equally valuable, like that's a moral frame. And so bringing that into the discussion, it just seems paramount. And I, I understand the politics are at play. Um, you know, none of us are naive. Um, I'm sure listening to this, and you and I definitely aren't, we understand the political uh, piece. But the moral piece has to take precedent if we're going to live up to the values that we say we believe in this country. So the paramount moral frame, you say that so well, is critical because the issue of school reopenings has an economic and racial fault line. Fault line. Parents who have the means are organizing nanny and tutor shares to keep their kids safe from the virus and out of school. Same time, lower income parents can't afford those measures and may be forced to send kids back to school as they are working quote essential jobs, essential jobs that don't yet pay a living wage or don't have adequate technology at home for virtual learning and a host of other issues. And these kids, as you just said, be most at risk for contracting the virus in schools and bringing it home. So families are at a tough place along economic and racial fault lines. So what are your thoughts and recommendations as an educator and a parent 
uh, of this crisis families face? And is there any way out that guards the, sa the safety and the education of all our students? So I wish there were that sort of like magical answer. Um, and there's not. Uh, but I will say there are some principles that we should be considering to make it as best as we can. So one, um, we know that we have to stabilize public school budgets with emergency funding if schools are going to be opening for things like um, the basic sort of, you know, personal protective equipment for teachers. I mean, these, these are sort of common sense that we all know to do at this point, hand sanitizer, updated ventilation systems to try to protect kids who may have to be in a school setting. Um, in places where um, distance learning is required, we have to explore subsidized childcare for elementary students in particular, whose parents have to leave home to go to work. Or we, we have to have emergency funding, paid leave for families to support in order to, to continue to support their younger students with distance learning. We have to pick one or the other, right? We can't just say open and then hope for the best or distance learning and hope for the best. There are too many families caught in the middle. So we've got some choices to make. And I know there are folks who don't wanna spend more money, but this is gonna require money, right? Either the PPE, the childcare, um, you know, a paid emergency leave for families, something, right, is gonna have to give. And we have to look at it from that perspective. Um, and then for schools that are going to continue to do the hybrid model or some type of distance learning, teachers need to have the professional development necessary in order to make this meaningful, especially for families who are not going to have access to that, their friend who's the physicist to tutor their kid, right? Teachers can do this and they can do it well if given the resources and the training and the tools from a technology standpoint, but from a, a training standpoint to do this well. Like that is possible. But again, that takes an investment um, of, of time and money. And the final thing I would say is we can't ignore uh, the need for districts to find and support families with some of the socio and emotional resources that students are going to need who are experiencing higher rates of trauma. Um, if we want kids to be able to learn fractions, and they can learn fractions, I believe every kid can, um, we have to make sure that we're tending to the other needs that may be holding them back that have nothing to do with their academic abilities. Indeed, the, the debate about reopening schools is also complicated by the fact that for decades now, at all levels of government, we have defunded and divested from public schools and education. So that, you know, you've got a whole, and even in the public school system uh, in D.C., for many years you had, <laughs> under the same system, schools in more affluent neighborhoods got mm -hmm. more resources. In the same district, yeah. And schools mm -hmm. in poor neighborhoods, same district, got less. And even when that gets, gets rectified or changed, you've got parent booster groups uh, of various kinds and PTAs and fundraisers and all that in more wealthy areas to add to the funding, add to the faculty or extracurriculars that students can do. So it's funding based on our racialized geography. Absolutely. And, you know, I know there will be people who hear this and say, well, it's not all about money, right? And, and I think of course it's not, but you know what? It certainly starts with money on so many levels. And to think that we don't need equitable funding, we're just asking for parity, 
you know, and, and we're and we're asking, let's start with parity. And then we're asking for us as a country to acknowledge the fact that kids who are starting lower economically and for a host of other reasons are going to need more to get them even to the same level of parity um, of kids who, as you said, have parents who have the ability to do so many more things um, outside of the public school funding model. And um, it, I, what I don't like in these conversations is that there are folks who are so quick to say, well, it's not about money, it's about other values or families cared more about their kids' education, they would find a way to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, that's that's such a, a negative framing. One, it devalues families and their poor beliefs of wanting the best for their kids. I've never met a parent who wants their kid to drop out of high school. I have not met that person. Um, so it, it, exactly. So it starts from such a negative frame, but it also ignores conveniently all of these systemic historical inequalities, as you mentioned, you know, residential segregation, um, a host of other things that are impacting what kids are able to achieve. And, and so we have to have the money conversation um, constantly. So um, parents, I'm seeing two parent families that both have jobs and they're trying to do their jobs and take care of and homeschool their kids, particularly younger children, and are just exhausted and are kind of concluding you can't have a job uh, and take care of a kid during COVID. And particularly for moms for whom still most of or much of household tasks and parenting fall on moms, try to keep their jobs. Now, this is two parent families. Now, you think of a one parent family trying to do all of that and make this work, one job. Uh, all the childcare, all the homeschooling, falling on a single parent, and it's 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 unimaginable, and it's unbelievable, and it's completely unjust. And we don't think about how how the educational system is re revealed. So, in these, as an expert in education, I got to ask you now: in the middle of twin, let's call them the twin pandemics of the virus and racial reckoning, twin pandemics. Racism is also a virus. The other day, uh, one of my uh, uh, sisters, who's a teacher, uh, was reflecting, we had one of those, those family catch-up calls, you know, and she said, you know, um, I was thinking the, um, the, uh, those who are, who, who are carrying the virus, but have no, they're asymptomatic, asymptomatic. Isn't that true of a lot of us white people carrying the virus of racism, but we're asymptomatic, like we don't think we're racist, and we have a friend who's black, uh, and we don't think we're, we're carrying it, but we're asymptomatic racism virus car carriers. I thought that was an interesting concept. But, that's a sermon. That's a sermon right yeah, there. Yeah, you can preach on that. <laughs> so, so, so it's like these inequities. It's revealing are helping us to reimagine our systems. Now, that's the powerful thing. It's almost like, you know, because we're shut down, uh, we were all watching. We were all watching when that excruciating eight minutes and forty six seconds with a white cop knee on George Floyd's black neck has led to 
a conversation about 401 years. Eight minutes, 46 seconds led to four centuries of conversation about that. So it's made us reimagine health insurance. I think it might make universal health insurance more possible now, because how can we imagine people not having health insurance? We've seen that. Or policing, for sure. Or for criminal justice, so much more. So how is this moment an opportunity as an educator to make fundamental changes in our educational systems, not just incremental reforms, but systemic changes. As an educator, what's been revealed for you and what do you see us already seeing and making maybe more possible in educational systemic reform? It's a great question. So I think it is a moment to to reimagine. I'm going to go in two different directions. I'll do the positive first and then a concern we have. So on the positive standpoint, I do think in places where for, for high school students in particular in communities who may not have access to as many advanced placement classes, as many educators who have who want to go and teach in those schools who have that skill set and that background, there's a there's an opportunity. Um, I don't think distance learning is great for everything, but what it certainly not for younger kids for sure. But what it can do for older kids is it if we get the technology and the training piece right, it can open up opportunities for kids who maybe don't have you know the AP Bio class in their high school to be able to at least have access to that curriculum virtually. So not not the answer but it's, it broadens the access. I think it's also made us take a look at things. I mean, you saw so many colleges reevaluate what they're looking for this year and what test kids had to take and what, what they had to accomplish to get into some of these schools for this year and next year. I think that's actually a good thing for us to take a moment and say, oh, wow, okay, so um, if everyone doesn't have access to you know, the test prep or even a chance to take the SAT, what does that mean for college admissions? If that forces us to think differently, I mean, I'm all about an objective measure. Like I think we need some way to sort of have something that's common language, but maybe we have the wrong thing as the common language right now. I don't know. Um, so I think, I think that's been wonderful. And I think what's been hysterical to me is to see so many people say, oh my gosh, teachers deserve so much more than we're giving them, right? Like, because all of a sudden everyone realizes that this is really hard just because we all went to fifth grade years ago doesn't mean we should be teaching fifth grade to our kids at home. And so um, now I now I temper that like excitement of people realizing teachers should get six figures with the fact that we're now simultaneously saying, but go back to work anyway, teachers. <laughs> like we don't really care about your health. I get the irony, but I think there are these moments where we're seeing just how important what happens in schools is to the development of our kids. The concern I have right now is that in this moment, like a little bit of that sleight of hand, because everyone is asking for more federal funding, there's also a piece of um, sort of a, a policy approach that Secretary DeVos is taking where she is requiring states to equally distribute Title I money, which is geared for the most vulnerable kids in public schools, to, to distribute it more evenly among private and parochial schools, which is very troubling um, for us. And as an organization, I have huge concerns about um, that moving forward, not because I don't want parochial schools and private schools who are educating, in some cases in our cities, lower income black and brown kids. They're doing God's work, right? 
everyone agrees with that. We just know that there should be another pot of money to give them their resources <laughs> and that it shouldn't be taking it like this shouldn't be one pie that we're all clamoring from because the public school system has 90% of the kids. So we want to make sure that in this moment, we don't reimagine education that way um, to make things uh, sort of diluted down. Let's find another stream of funding to make sure that those kids, those schools who do educate the most vulnerable families in private and parochial schools, give them their resources, but let's hold the line um, for the public school kids as well. You think that maybe this focus on uh, remote learning, digital learning could, could help if, 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 if the education and devices and bandwidth was provided, could help more of our kids increase their digital literacy, which a new generation, like I'm just amazed all the time, where I have a research question that I'm thinking about. And instead of calling a research assistant, I'll ask my son, Jack, how to find this. You know, he can tell me. In any conversation we're having, something comes up. He says, oh, let me look that up. And so there's a digital capacity that's generationally very different. Uh, and if more kids and, and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, low income kids have a lot of the sort of, they may not have the devices or the education, but they have, they have the savvy, <laughs> the savvy to figure this out. And so it could some, some of this lead to more digital capacity and therefore savvy for more kids. I definitely think that is happening and should happen if, again, we get all the resources and the, the high-speed internet all established because the world has changed you know, dramatically, certainly since I was in school years ago and um, is changing for this generation. The ability to have um, you know, some basic coding skills is going to be required for pretty much every job right? moving forward. Yeah, right. And you can definitely learn to do coding online. There are a lot of free courses available this summer because people are trying to you know, find stuff for, for kids to do. Um, and if that can facilitate and propel us by force to do that, that is something that we can distribute that knowledge and that skill set pretty equally if everyone has the technology that they need at home to do that. And that could take us hugely forward uh, from an educational standpoint and from a job preparation standpoint. I mean, how wonderful would it be to see a shift in um, women and, and uh, people of color who are more positioned and ready, and ready for that type of skill set because of this moment? It would, it would be a shame if we didn't, honestly. That's a great point. You know, it's like uh, some people are critical of young people for sitting in a room uh, uh, looking at their phones and not talking to each other. That's the standard critique. And there's some truth in that. But the other thing is you see a bunch of kids who are together with their phones Googling something together or talking about something together or they, or new stuff comes up in the conversation and well, I'll find out. And then there's this conversation that goes on where they're literally pulling the world into their conversation. They, they are. And, yeah, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, you know, I have a 14 year old and we are constantly amazed at the things that she has knowledge of. Um, and I'm talking about, I'm talking about the good stuff, Jim, not the bad stuff. Um, but, but just the awareness of issues. I know I read this article and because it's constantly at their fingertips and, and that can be a good thing. And I think we often embrace technology as 
oh gosh, no one's ever going to read a book again. Um, and, and that may be happening to some extent, but um, there are some positives. And if we can look at this moment, if we equip all of our kids and our families adequately, this could be a, a real turning point on that. So a very big and political question, uh, of course, is how, how could we and should we fund education in a different and better way? That is a constant um, piece that we wrestle with. And because, as I'm sure, you know, I know you and I both know that so much of what happens with school funding is generated from from states and cities. Not, I think the federal government does about 8% of the funding for school districts, which is a little known um, fact occasionally. I think people are less aware of that. And so in many states, property taxes still rule the day. Of, of how funding is distributed. And there over the last decade or so, there have been more and more um, systemic policy changes to push to change that funding formula. But there are still places and states and districts where that does drive um, what happens largely from a funding standpoint. And of course, you know, you can do the math as to who's generating more property taxes. Um, so that's that's one piece um, that I think needs to be thought of differently if we're truly going to make things equitable. And, and there is going to there, there there's going to need to be some redistribution, which I know makes people very uncomfortable um, from a funding standpoint. But we can either do that on the front end and ensure that every child has access to a high quality public preschool, or we can do it on the back end when we're dealing with significantly more economic and social challenges because we haven't allowed every child to live up to their God-given potential. And um, we have a reckoning as a nation. Do we want to do that or not? Um, we need the political will and people of faith should be on the forefront of demanding that change. And the cost of that for people's humanity, but also economically, the cost of the back end uh, trying to deal with the consequences of not doing front-end education for kids who really, you know, most kids are eager to learn <laughs> if, if they have a chance. They are. And I think we we are often drawn into these well-worn ideas that you were talking earlier about the um, asymptomatic sort of racism. I think there's asymptomatic value judgment about, you know, black and brown kids and lower income families that often holds us back from being willing to take the hard moral and sort of national financial commitment. Because if we truly believed every child had the ability to learn, I mean, every child, you know, regardless of their family's background, if they just immigrated to this country, if their their parent is, is uh, incarcerated, if we truly believed every child had the ability, we would be prioritizing things differently in this country. And um, that's a reckoning that we need to have as well. Like, do we see value in every single child in our nation or not? And you use the word, the R word, redistribution. You think that might make some people comfortable, and indeed it does. There's another R word that is coming into the conversation more and more when you look at 401 years of slavery and systemic racism, racialized slavery, as Brian Stevenson says, uh, slavery never ended, it just kept getting revised, just just revised over and over again. Or, now, um, reparations, which people say, oh, what do you mean? Well, it means repair, <laughs> you know, reparations, repairing damage, the damage we, we've done. And nobody has an easy answer or, but, you know, I think reparation to repair something 
I can't think of education. I can't think of anything that would repair more than education. Education is a reparative thing to social inequities. How many times do kids have a chance to just, you know, it's usually a relationship or a family, a, a mom or a coach or an uncle, but it always includes, um, you know, John Lewis. John Lewis, we're just talking, remembering John Lewis, and of all the things he said, he said say that he would he would often uh, get dressed for school and he would go hide under his porch until the bus for school drove by and he'd run out and get on the bus. So nobody would keep him from going to school because of work that had to be done. And he put on his tie and his suit to go to school every day. And here's this kid from a parents, former sharecroppers, nine siblings. And he said he wanted to school every day and read everything he could. And, and, and now John Lewis is, we're remembering him as, as one of the central change agents in our nation's history. And he knew that for him to, to, to make a difference for his family and his world, he needed that education that he just was going to get one way or the other. So reparations, I think, may have a lot to do with uh, educational repairing or reparations. What, what do you think of that? I, I could not agree more. Um, you know, I'm obviously biased because I focus on education in my every day of my life and in trying to fight for, for equity for all kids. But it's hard for me to see another path um, that has as much potential to really allow every child to live up to their potential. You know, I'm not naive to think that we don't have to fix multiple systems. We need to make sure we have, you know, jobs that actually pay a living wage and to make sure, you know, black kids aren't, you know, put in jail unfairly. And, and there are a host of other things that that play into this. But at its core, you know, schools should be designed to allow kids to flourish. We talk so much in faith communities about everyone having a God-given purpose. And I certainly, I certainly believe in that. There are fewer institutions that I think um, have a direct impact on a child's ability to identify their purpose than a school. Um, and it's not to take away from, from the church or the mosque or the synagogue. Those all have an influence too. But in terms of sheer time, schools are where kids are spending more of that time, right? And, and if, if a child is, their purpose is to ultimately be an engineer, well, you know what? They have to go to a school where they're going to be able to graduate from high school, you know, at least taking, you know, trigonometry or pre-calc, right? They can't graduate from high school with the math skills of a seventh or eighth grader, which is what many of our kids in our urban schools are graduating with. Like that child is unlikely to fulfill that purpose. And so this is the place where that can thrive and develop just like John Lewis um, ran to school. Like we want kids to be able to run to school and know that they're going to get the ability to just be who they are and who God destined them to be. And if we don't think about education that way, um, we're missing, I, I think, generations of kids that, that won't have their potential fully realized. I think John Lewis would, would say it was in schools of different kinds. He kept moving on to a different school. And seminary was part of that. And Nashville was part of that. I think it's that's where he learned who he was <laughs> and who he was called to be for the rest of us. I wrote down when you said uh, that educating kids is God's work. Uh, I love that phrase. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you to 
think about all of it to say a prayer. <laughs> You're not a priest, a pastor, a bishop. I think you could be good at all those things, actually. But but all these parents who are sitting around their dinner tables tonight uh, and trying to figure out what they've heard from their school and what their plan is and what we're, we're going to do and what about our neighbors and our friends, our brothers and sisters, and what about those who don't know the resources that we, we, we have? It's like, this is a mess. We're not going to solve it by... By uh, by our particular hybrid plan that you and I could come up up with and agree to, uh, it's gonna. How do we make these decisions, and how do we make them as people of faith with that moral lens you talked about? How do we, I, I guess, prayerfully make these tough decisions about our kids and other kids, and what's going to happen to them during this fall, and who knows how long this is going on? But it's gotta it's gotta change us somehow. What's going on now? We can't just survive it and then get back to some kind of normal. The normal has to be different, uh, what the new normal is. So could, with those parents and kids, it's, for you, it's educating kids is God's work, and it is. So hell help us to do God's work by figuring out how to educate our kids or help them get educated. What kind of, say a prayer for us right now in the middle of all this as we try and figure it out what to do. Amen. I'm happy to pray because uh, these problems are so massive. Sometimes I don't know what else to do, Jim. <laughs> God, we are grateful for the chance to to come and, and reflect on just the amazing potential and beauty and likeness of you that we know exists in every child in our nation, regardless of where their family lives, what zip code they're, they reside in, they're made in your image and in your likeness. And right now we lift up those parents that are making incredibly difficult decisions about how to sift through all of this, wondering, worrying, and agonizing God. We ask you to be the, the ultimate giver of wisdom as we know that you are. We ask for wisdom for our leaders who are making difficult decisions. We ask you to remind them to welcome other voices, educators, families, um, our more vulnerable families into the conversation to truly hear from them, to design something that will meet their needs. And we ask for safety and protection um, for families that are on the front lines or have essential jobs that have to leave their homes, that you would give them protection as they wrestle with even more acute challenges to figure out what their next steps are. We ask for wisdom, for a sense of calm and a sense of humility that we don't actually have all the answers. And for those families that do have more resources, we ask you to prick our hearts to remember those who don't have as many resources. And so if we have to stand down to give another family something that we have the ability to do differently, let us operate that way because that's a way of reflecting your kingdom. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us, Nicole. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Jim. To hear more from Nicole, follow her on Twitter at Nicole B. Fulgham. Let me give that clearly. Nicole B. Fulgham, F-U-L-G-H-A-M, at Nicole B. Fulgham. And check out the Expectations Project on Facebook. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter if you'd like, at Jim Wallace. Blessings to all of you for the Soul of the Nation.